Well, good morning. My name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. It is a great joy to be here this morning. It's a great joy to be able to share with you out of John chapter 9. Um, quite the task here with 41 verses, but we're going to get through it before the congregational meeting, I promise. Well, I love being outdoors, um, especially on sunny spring days, the vibrant colors that emerge, uh, especially this time of year, especially with that sun shining, take the place of the winter days where usually grays and brown, browns are prevalent. Um, but the light of that sun brings many things. You know, it brings warmth, it brings clarity, it brings a welcome uh, to overcome the grays and browns. And so we welcome it on colder days. We leverage it when we see more clearly the task outside, uh, to light a path, and even to sit out and soak in some of that sun as per God's design to create vitamin D in our bodies. Um, but at times we're also repelled by it. Uh, when, we, when it hits us directly especially, think about the times when you're driving in a vehicle and you turn just right and that sun just hits you right there in the eyes. Or you're sitting at home or maybe in a restaurant, and the same thing happens. The sun shines through, or a reflection hits you, and you are hit hard with the sun right there. And we were repelled. In those moments, we may cover our eyes, or we turn away, or we use some kind of obstacle to block it. Well, the sun, Jesus Christ, has had a similar impact on those as we have navigated the book of John. Some welcome him, and some are repelled by him. Some of you are going to realize I'm going to need a lot of water in talking a lot, so um, bear with me. But this morning, so as, as we head into chapter 9, I want us to re be reminded of a few additional things, too. First, uh, the purpose of John. Recall that we've stated all along in John chapter 20, the author John says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Seven total signs in the Gospel of John, and in chapter 9 we'll hear about the sixth one. And then the second thing is regarding chapters 7 and 8. You know, last five weeks we've been in chapters 7 and 8, uh, um, not including Easter, which was the Feast of Booths, this Jewish, Jewish celebration. And there were many amazing statements from Jesus during this time. Such as, such as in John 7:37, Jesus said, On the last day, or the, it was recorded, On the last day of the feast, the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And we heard from Pastor Josh a summary that the water in this celebration, Jesus proclaimed, That's me. I'm the source. And another time in John 8, verse 12, we heard again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We heard from Pastor Brandon a summary that the light in the celebration, Jesus proclaims yet again, that's me. I am the source. I am the light of God's presence. The I am, God in the flesh, who came for the salvation of all nations, who gives new life to those who follow him. That is exactly what we encounter today in chapter 9, an illustration of John chapter 8, verse 12, the light of the world in action. And so to forecast how we'll do this, uh, we'll, be break, uh, we'll break uh, this healing down into three movements. And the first is the healing itself in John 
um, 9 verses 1 to 7. Uh, followed by a second movement in verses 8 through 34, where there are four groups of testimonies that occur in response to the healed man. And then the last movement is at the end, in verses 35 to 41, where Jesus comes back on the scene. And so let's look at how this healing unfolds in these beginning verses of chapter 9. So recall in uh, chapter 8, verse 59, that Jesus went out of the temple. So verse 1 picks up somewhere outside of the temple. We don't have an exact location, nor are we told the time gap between leaving the temple and when this healing occurred. Um, we were giving some, given some clues, though. We're near the pool or somewhere near the pool of Siloam, so we're likely in Jerusalem. And also in chapter 10, verse 22, we hear about the next feast in the Jewish celebrations, which is the Feast of Dedication. So, or, yeah. So this is actually three months typically after the Feast of Booths. So somewhere likely in that window, it's reasonable to think that Jesus and his disciples are still in Jerusalem and not much time has passed. So Jesus and the disciples, they're walking along and they notice a man blind. Now what do we know about this man? We know right away from verse 1, this was a man born blind since birth. And we also know from verses 21 and 22, this is a man who was of age, as it said. And in that culture of age meant at least 13 Um, So we know he's at least that old. So that's a long time being blind, and that's a long time being in this predicament because in that culture, being blind likely meant there was very little opportunity for work. The likely means of provision would have been for the man to wait along high traffic areas to beg for food and to beg for for provision. And that's exactly what we do uh, get from verse 8. So a very rough life of dependence given his predicament and very visible as well. So the city folk would have recognized this guy. And the response in verse 2 by the disciples is interesting. What a question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now we may look at that and think that's odd, but actually that would be a common assumption in the culture of that day. That even with the Old Testament backdrop, the idea that sin and that suffering arose from the sin of a person or generations prior is not uncommon. However, it's not the only option either, biblically. On a case-by-case basis, consider Job. Consider Christ himself. Or maybe even Paul with other New Testament examples in 2 Corinthians 12 or Galatians 4. You know, these are all examples case-by-case where there's no connection between specific suffering that results from their own sin. So as for us readers, we only need to go to verse 3 to gain clarity. Through Jesus' response, where he says it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Did you catch that? That's worth a pause. That the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus is saying that this man spent his full life so far blind, and with blindness usually meant that rough life or difficult life in the culture, with the primary means of provision through begging, I would say this passage tests our theology, our study of God, what we believe about him, our understanding of God's sovereignty and will and about suffering. That God would have planned and purposed this man's situation so that Jesus was about to do in and through him would be a real-life demonstration of the impact of Jesus, the light of the world. That he would plan to do this on a person that caused him then to follow Jesus and not walk in darkness, both physically and spiritually. Meditate on that one today. 
Now, I'll caution here, I don't want to create a ditch that all suffering situations will result in salvation or all suffering that we face today in our lives, which many of us do, even right now, that that will be uh, promised a rescue. That's not the promise here. It is less about the blind man's blindness. It's more about the one who gives sight. So as we progress into verses 4 and 5, there seems to be a strange shift away from the blind man in verses 4 and 5 when Jesus continues and says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now there's specific work to do Jesus is referring to here, and he's referring to his work on earth, which he mentions is day. So Jesus is fully aware of what needs to happen not only in this healing, but in, the ministry, in his activity to come. And it would include this healing, but also the, 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 the work to come that he would also include his disciples in. And this would last until, he says, night, which is referring to his death and resurrection. Now, these works include his disciples too, as noted, but a reference to their participation in Jesus' ministry is in view here. So, his unique work on this earth is what's in view when Jesus says that. So we want to not be too confused here that the light that exposes the world, judges the world, and saves the world is amongst them. That's the work that's happening. And we're going to see that in this passage. So this unique work of Jesus' earthly ministry is complete with his death. And therefore, there's no more of that work to do. Now just a note here, by extension, there is work that continues so we don't get an out on this. All right, there is work that continues that applies to you and I today and is in keeping with the work that Jesus did while he was here. The labor that we are all called to as his people. But we'll cover that in a moment. So verse 5 should also look familiar. A repeat of chapter 8, verse 12, as I have mentioned. Recall the themes of John of light, meaning salvation and life, and darkness, meaning judgment and death. This again ties nicely uh, with the physical element of blindness, so this darkness and restoring sight, which is light. Drawing then on the spiritual aspects, light for those who have Christ and believe, and darkness for those who do not have Christ and are separated from him who do not believe. Jesus is the light of God's presence. And again, Jesus completes this unique work of his earthly ministry while he is in the world, as he said. Now, as we move into verse 6, notice that Jesus uses mud as part of this healing. Why? It seems really strange. Could be, it could be a physical reference to the creation in Genesis chapter 2, in that Jesus ushered a new kingdom reality in by recreating his people spiritually. So a born again, as we've heard about in John chapter 3. And there's also this aspect of healing on the Sabbath we're going to hear about. So Jesus had to do an actual work here to complete this healing. We'll find out more about that shortly. But more importantly... The one sent by the Father, Jesus, completes an act and sends the blind man to go to the pool of Siloam, which means sent. There's a repeated pattern here. Every detail ties together. This same pool as is the one, uh, as some commentators point to, that was used during the Feast of Booths, as we read about in chapter 8. No coincidence there. The blind man just obeyed, and we too can learn from this. So, so far in the passage, my appeal then is to trust Jesus even if the details in life do not make sense. When we look at the blind man being birthed 
uh, the, the man being blind since birth, it doesn't make sense to us. So we're to trust Jesus even if the details do not make sense. Being obedient and faithful to what he puts in front of us each day, each moment. The disciples thought they had this figured out. Jesus corrects them about this specific situation and reminds them of his activity while here on earth. And the blind man simply obeys. Then he saw. This ends that first movement. And now Jesus uh, um, will exit the scene, so to speak, and we are left now to enter the second movement, which is all these testimonies about the res- in the response to the to the blind the man healed. Now, as others will see this man, we're be interesting to see what are their responses going to be. As we heard, um, or as we uh, yeah, as we head into this next movement, we'll notice that there are testimonies by several, and those testimonies display the fruit of sight or the fruit of blindness. So key into what are you hearing when you hear, see the response of the people to this healed man. And the fruit of sight and fruit of blindness is spiritually speaking. And so here we are with four specific testimonies that we'll encounter. The first one is of the blind man to those familiar with him. So his neighbors and those others probably close to him. We see this in verse, verses 8 to 12. What is the fruit of the neighbors that, that uh, knew the healed man? Well, in verses 8 and 9, some knew him and some confirm, yes, this is the healed man, where others says, well, no, he's one like him. Uh, maybe a mix of confidence and some doubt or confusion. But after hearing from the healed man, no, I'm the one, uh, they, they go on to inquiring about, well, who healed you? So it seems it's fair to say that they were receptive to both the healer and the healed one. Um, now, what is the fruit of the healed man? His posture was that he indeed was the man that Jesus healed, and he gave a clear testimony about what happened. And that's all he knew. That's all he knew, and he refers to Jesus as the man named Jesus. So that's what he knew so far. Now, maybe you can relate to the neighbors when it comes to Jesus and what you see or hear even today. Don't stop asking questions. Don't stop pressing into your doubts. Or maybe you have someone in your life right now like this, curious, inquiring, open to conversation. Share what you know about Jesus with, these open, with those open to conversation. Just share what you know. It's exactly what the man did. This is all he knew, but he shared it. Now, the second testimony builds on the first. These neighbors now take the blind man to the Pharisees in verses 13 to 17. And we might, we might think, well, why would they do that? That seems odd. Um, but it's clear that the expectation, at least from the Old Testament backdrop, is that since a healing occurred, that they would have the answer surrounding this healing. They would be able to confirm, uh, uh, given the backdrop, just how, how the healing happened, and they would be able to affirm the one who healed. So this wasn't an intention by the neighbors to stir uh, something up here. This was a legitimate uh, bringing this man to, the, to religious leaders. Now in verse 14, it's interesting, it's also mentioned explicitly that the Sabbath uh, that this occurred on the Sabbath. So this, this is the part that should indicate a problem is brewing. Much like the healing in John chapter 5 that we've covered uh, several weeks ago, where the healing on the Sabbath provoked the Jews to increased opposition to Jesus. So in verse 16, the religious leaders are divided, but, is Jesus and not, but they're about, divided about who Jesus is and not the man who was healed. So they did not deny that the man was healed, but the main concern is that the healing occurred on the Sabbath, and that this healer was a sinner. The religious leader's understanding about Jesus so far is this is not a man from God. 
This is a sinner. What is the fruit of the Pharisees, these religious leaders? Clear denial of who Jesus is with a focus on Sabbath law-breaking, concluding that Jesus is a sinner, not from God, the fruit of unbelief. What is the fruit of the healed man? Again, he gives a clear testimony, if you look back at the verses, the same that he did with his neighbors. But notice the progression of this man's understanding of who Jesus is. He refers to Jesus as a prophet in verse 17. A progression of increased clarity about who Jesus is. More than just a man. The fruit of belief here. Now, have you ever been in situations where you had the opportunity to identify with Jesus and with those that you know who opposed him, who, who are opposed to him or opposed to Christianity? Maybe at work or at school, you know, online with your family or friends. Share with those who oppose you. Don't shrink back. Ultimately, they oppose Jesus and not you. Now, grow in your understanding of Jesus as well. Why? To deepen your relationship with him. Not just about head knowledge, but about a deep and abiding relationship with him. Now, as we go on to verses 18 to 23, the third testimony continues to build on the second. The religious leaders call upon the healed man's parents now. So rather than deal with the previous dilemma of who Jesus is, how this sign could have possibly happened by Jesus, they divert to disproving it all by calling into question the blindness of the healed man in verse 18. And they hope to do so just by questioning his parents. What is the fruit of the Jews here? Well, clear denial of who Jesus is yet again. They're, going, they're very persistent in finding a way to discredit Jesus and the healing. Now, their own questioning, questioning confirms their blindness, that is, unbelief, that Jesus, about Jesus' identity and his works. They are really the ones on trial here. In response to their questions in verse 19, the parents confirm that the healed man is their son and has been blind since birth. So in verses 21 to 23, take notice, though. The parents respond, stating, they do not know how he sees or who healed them. And John tells us why they respond this way in verse 22. What is the fruit of the healed man's parents? This is a tough one. Lying? Yes, but due to an unhealthy fear. A fear of man rather than a fear of God, speaking the truth out of reverence for God. Now, on one hand, they were honest about identifying their son and stating that he was blind since birth, but they shrunk back when pressed about who healed their son. So we are left with this one data point about these folks, these parents. And I believe it would be short-sighted for us to draw firm conclusions about them. But what we can conclude this is this, that, that fear did drive them to respond, at least partially. The fear of being put out of the synagogue, which is the hub of, the wor- uh, hub of worship and community at that time. And so we ought to be able to relate somewhat to this fear. Maybe some of you have had that experience. Grow through your fears of sharing Jesus, and they are real. We need to acknowledge that, but press into them simply by sharing. Now, what I have found personally in my own journey is that once I start sharing, those fears fizzle away. As we head into verses 24 to 34, this is the fourth and final testimony against, or again, and then um, it continues all the way uh, through verse 34. It continues from the previous two, and the religious leaders now, uh, now the parents aside, they bring the healed man back in for questioning yet again. 
Now, this guy thought he had it rough being a blind beggar. Seems this trial of sorts has created quite the stir amongst the religious community. In verse 24, the Jews' progression in who Jesus is, now they know that Jesus is a sinner because of healing on the Sabbath, as noted in verse 16. They take it further by commanding the man to denounce Jesus in align with their understanding of who he is. Notice the healed man's response. He avoids what he doesn't know. Rather, he focuses on what he knows. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. In verse 26, the Jews are interested in the details of how, yet another distraction from dealing with who Jesus is and how he could have accomplished this. Their questioning is not an authentic inquiry, but rather one with an agenda to disprove. Where is the loophole? Where's the failure in this? We got him now. All characteristics of one blind in darkness. All the markings of unbelief. Notice the healed man's response, consistent, holding his ground. He says, I already told you, you would not listen. Why would they not listen? They are not hearing what they want to hear. And what a slam at the end. You want to be his follower, the the healed man says. Ouch. This is really a rebuke. But they have already condemned themselves by their own words. Finally, in verse 28, we have yet another diversion tactic. We are disciples of Moses. In verse 29, God is noted, God had spoken to Moses. They believed they understood Moses through, the, through his teachings and writings, or did they really? But they don't know about Jesus, where he comes from, and that's odd because the Old Testament speaks of Jesus. So we have really, have they really listened to Moses? Do they really know Moses? They don't know where Jesus comes from because they haven't really listened to Moses as Jesus notes in John 5, verses 44 to 47. Where the Jews appealed to their affiliation with Moses, there as well, and were were rebuked by Jesus. Jesus has already addressed this claim from the religious leaders. And again, the healed man's response in verses 30 to 33 is to hold his ground. Now a bit snarky, yet showing how one should be thinking through this. Although his words are a rebuke, he does call them, out for, uh, call them out for their errors. Such as in verse 31, God does not listen to sinners, but does listen to those who do his will. Jesus' actions are showing that God listens to him. The, the healed man is affirming this, and, he's, and this is affirmed even by another Jewish leader, if you think back to John 3, verse 2, Nicodemus. The healed man is saying that Jesus was from God. This is the only logical conclusion. And again, a progression of his understanding of Jesus. In the final response from the religious leaders in verse 34, a total derailment here, putting the focus back on the blind man's credibility, then casting him out of the synagogue. That is an easy solution, to get rid of the man giving testimony about Jesus and his works. A present-day example of canceling there. Now, what is the fruit of the Jews? Well, again, clear denial of who Jesus is. Yet again, their opposition continues to grow. Look at the trajectory. And what is the fruit of the healed man? The the trajectory of increased understanding of who Jesus is. Implied statements of of Jesus being a worshiper of God, doing God's will, being listened to by God. This interaction might cause you to consider how you approach those that oppose Jesus. 
Don't shy away from speaking the truth about Jesus and in calling out the darkness in those that oppose him, regardless of the cost. Persistence in truth about Jesus is key, and at times hard truth back their way is the most loving thing that you can do for somebody. Be prepared for increased opposition, opposition though. And so the man has been cast out of the synagogue. The outcome from all this, a clear opposition by the religious leaders to Jesus, the healing that Jesus did, and the healed man. However, the healed man has an immediate training through all those experiences on sharing what he knew. He persevered, and it seems like through his interactions, he grew in his understanding of Jesus. In this third movement of the passage in verses 35 to 41, we see Jesus back on the picture. And Jesus finds the healed man and now asks the most important question, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus not only alludes to this healed man seeing him physically, but truly knowing who is before him, God in the flesh. And we see the man's response in verse 38, belief expressed in worship, an appropriate response. This shows the root of belief, Jesus himself at the center, displayed in the healed man's humility and worship. Now we also see a different response to Jesus in verse 39 to 41. In 39, Jesus gives an explanation of the whole thing in this verse for judgment, he states. To give some new life from darkness to light and to make others aware of their spiritual state of blindness. They are the ones in judgment already. And in verse 40, that is the right question to ask. Are we blind also? The answer from the reader's vantage point, given the exchange and everything that we had just seen, is absolutely Jesus makes it clear as possible that the religious leaders in verse 41, he emphasizes that they believe they understand the law and consequently they should be aware of who he is. Yet, they claim this and are aware but yet reject him. So his judgment is that they are still in darkness, blindness, remaining in abiding guilt. This shows the root of their blindness or unbelief, their abiding sin. So this puts themselves at the center rather than God displayed in their prideful response of questioning Jesus. So the verdict is in, the healed man sees Jesus Christ for who he truly is, God in the flesh. And the healed man's labor was simply to share what he knew about Jesus. Compelled by belief and worship. On the other hand, the religious leaders do not see Jesus Christ for who he is. And their labor was to continue in their sin, working hard to reject Jesus. Now you've heard some examples of practical application so far. But let me charge you with a few things as we wrap up this passage. First, from a few weeks back when we covered John 8, 12, Pastor Brandon offered a great summary. And with that, that Jesus is the light of God's presence. And to walk in the light of Jesus is to walk in his life and salvation, the new life from above. And to walk in darkness is to remain in the shadows of unbelief and separation from God. The greatest modern-day miracle is when the Lord changes the heart of another person, giving them spiritual sight, moving them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God, death to life. This is the work at the root, the heart, 
which is the Lord's work to move somebody from unbelief to belief in Jesus Christ. That's freeing, that that's the Lord's work. And his, as his people, we get to be a part of that work, this work of the greatest modern-day miracle of a changed life. How? Well, we are his representatives. We put Jesus in front of people, not ourselves, by the way we live our life in actions and words by sharing this gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there is no greater activity in life than this. No matter where you are, your work, school, neighborhood, family gatherings, around friends, engaged in activities that you're involved in, anytime you are around people, this is it. All of these people that the Lord has already put around you each day. And at this point, you really don't have to add anything new to your schedule unless you're never around those that don't know Jesus. Maybe just repurpose your approach when around those that God has put in your path each day. So when we are putting Jesus in front of people, this will prompt a response, just like we had seen in these examples in chapter 9. Maybe similar in some ways that we've heard about. But as we end today, I'd like to address a few different folks that might be in the room right now. Are you blind? I don't mean that in a snarky way. But repent and believe unto Jesus Christ. It's clear that you don't know if you're blind, by the way, but there may be some in this room today, and this is who I'm addressing, where the Lord has opened your eyes today. The entire day, including the remembrance and the communion, is about pointing to Jesus. Maybe some of you have had your eyes open today. These are, the, these are you of which whom I'm speaking. He has opened up your eyes to see Jesus for, to, for who he really is, the Savior of the world that has given his life for the forgiveness of sins and maybe opened up your eyes to the reality of being a sinner in need of his forgiveness. So I would say respond like the healed man, confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and put your trust in him today for the forgiveness of sin. May today be the day of salvation for you. Are you unsure? Well, read 1 John over and over and over and over. There may be some in this room today that are not sure about all this. Do I believe? Do I not? Am I sure? Am I not? I feel stuck. I struggle with sin. I have committed a sin that can't possibly be forgiven. You know, all of these might be some of you who are unsure. Is this you? And no matter where you are in your assurance of this, take some time and read through 1 John. And then grab a trusted Christian friend who can help you and walk through that. Keep these conversations around this topic going that you might increase in your confidence in Christ and grow in your understanding and assurance of him. Do you see? As sent ones, be his light in this world. Don't shrink back. Share what you know about Jesus, just like the healed man. Believer, be reminded that putting Jesus in front of others is not about you. It is about the Son who has worked in you to give you new life so that he shines through you. Jesus is the hero of this story, so heed his words when he says this. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, friends, trust Jesus to give clarity about lasting life and labor.
Would you pray with me? Well, Lord, thank you for your word, for this passage, a clear illustration that through Jesus, those that are in darkness, blind, unbelief, can have new life, see, believe, through your finished work on the cross. Help us to evaluate where we are today so that we might know you more and engage in the labor that you have for your people, to be your representatives here on earth, to make you known in this dark world. Apart from this, we have no hope, but in you we have hope now and forever. Amen.